Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Happy holidays, everyone. This week, it's going to be the best of for all of 2022 listeners and editors' choices as to the greatest exchanges from a lot of incredible conversations. Have a wonderful holiday with you and yours, and we will see you in the new year. 2022, best of, coming up next. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome to the podcast one of the greatest investors of all time. That's no exaggeration to say. Uh, and number one New York Times bestselling author, including author of the extraordinary new book, Principles for Dealing with a Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. Ray Dalio, the head of Bridgewater, the biggest hedge fund in the world, joins us. Thank you so much for being here, Ray. Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you and your audience. You had a sentence in your book that I thought was maybe the strongest sentence I'd ever seen from a business leader that uh, I was not aware of until I read your, your book in full, which was you said that you think that the odds of America slipping into a civil war type scenario over the next 10 years is around 30%. And you characterize that as like not that high a risk. I feel like that should be... A1 headline news <laughs> everywhere. And by the way, I'm with you. Like, I, I agree with you. Here's what I think is happening and, and probably will happen. The populism of the left and the right uh, are individuals who will, are, are fighters for those constituencies. And uh, there are very different values, very different approaches. What that means is that there's little compromise and there's much greater extremism, very much like happened in Europe. Four major democracies in the 1930 to 45 period had this type of internal conflict that ended up their parliaments, their uh, legislatures choosing to have autocracies that they went to autocracies, uh, Germany, Italy, uh, Japan, and Spain. And if you study history, you see it was the same in the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, which are all sort of civil wars. You lose the middle and you, because you have to say, Andrew, you got to get on one side or another and fight. When the causes that people are behind are more important to them than the system, the system is in jeopardy. And so you see just even uh, people moving 
from place to place in terms of where they think it's more uh, sympathetic to their way of being and what they're like. You know, New York, Chicago, uh, San Francisco, California moves to Texas and so on. And you're seeing um, then um, not a not as much respect for the Constitution and the legal system because you have a win at all cost. So, for example, if you have the dispute between, um, let's say, Disney and um, the Florida governor in the past, there would have been almost mutual respect for different points of view. But what you now get back is you get back to a power conflict. Well, you know, what would the odds put? I'll ask you what you think the odds are uh, that, for example, in the next presidential election, that neither side accepts losing. You know, I'd say mm, almost too close to call. Um, and, and what is the possibility that states do not follow the directions of the Supreme Court? decisions, because the Supreme Court decisions can be viewed by one side as a political decision made by the other Supreme Court, and how do we get around that or whatever, just like sanctuary cities. In other words, I will not follow that rule. And that, and so now you start to have a breakdown of um, the system, and you have power politics determining things. So I think that that kind of uh, civil war is relatively likely. I, I, I don't disagree with you at all, Ray. And anyone who listens to me knows that I've been trying to sound an alarm on this. So one of the things you say in your book is that uh, you think one way out of this is a strong peacemaker, and we pray for them. <laughs> uh, and, but you say that that's not something that uh, generally happens, uh, that, that generally the other thing happens. Um, what what I'm trying to do, have you seen any of uh, Catherine Geller Michael's or Michael Porter's work on political incentives? Because one of the things that's driving our polarization is that we have these party primaries that disproportionately empower the most extreme 10% of, of partisan voters. So one thing we're trying to do is change the mechanics of the, our elections so that it's not just the most extreme uh, hyper-partisans choosing our leaders and then re-electing them. Right now, you have... 20% of Americans happy with Congress, which is very, very low. Uh, but the re-election rate for individual members is 94%, which is astronomically high. But your, your book talks about the increase in polarization as a precursor to some of these very negative things happening. And there are other societies that have democracies that have more than two parties. <laughs> That's actually the norm in most of, of the world. And so what, what we're trying to do at Forward is change the mechanics so that you can have more points of view emerge and then start a positive unifying third party force that represents the reasonable middle uh, that can draw energy and resources and also put pressure on both of the parties to compromise. I don't know if this is something that you've dug into and explored either in terms of the mechanics of why uh, it seems like we're getting uh, more extreme polarized leadership um, or if there have been other countries that have uh, reformed their way out so I, I, I think we're uh, completely in agreement, let's, and just going back to the mechanics, I, I think it has to do with fear. I hope that we can have understand what the context, what, what it means to have the type of civil war, the, what is the probability, and what does that mean? Um, like I have a principle, if you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good rule of life. If you worry, 
you'll take care of the thing you're worrying about and you can worry less. And, and if you don't, then probably it'll kill you. The extremism, which um, has problems in terms of destroying a system is a terrible path. Anybody who's gone through this, and I, I mean it domestically as well as internationally, but the number one thing is that the population has got to want that. And we have, and in our two party system, we have a problem because um, uh, let's say uh, there's about 30% of the population I, I would define as being uh, rather uh, extreme right. And maybe something like 15% of the population being extreme left. But as a percentage of their uh, uh, own parties, they're relatively high. And they're gathering more as their as the fight approaches, and so they become then dominant, and you have that particular result. But the power of the middle, if you can, and and the power of of, of also compromise, if you can bring that about, uh, is enor is enormous because still the majority of people are not in the, those two. We're, we're, we're talking about 45% of the population maybe is, is fairly extreme at, at opposite ends, um, but the majority still aren't there. And if the majority had, they have to be smart enough to know how to increase the size of the pie and divide the pie well to create, produce equal opportunity and, and equal and some element of sharing it to get the balance right. You wrote a number of pieces in 2018 and 2019 about how we need to try and reform the economy or reform capitalism, capitalism so that it works for more people. And one of the stats that you cited was a stat that I cited too on the trail, which was that the odds of American children doing better than their parents uh, are down to, let's say, 50-50 and dropping, which is one of the things that's driving people to anger, frustration. I mean, it's very fundamental. You're a parent, I'm a parent. If you felt like your kids are going to do worse than you, then you start looking around being like, okay, what the heck is, is going wrong? Yes, I wrote a study, which was why and how capitalism needs to be reformed, which was a very controversial study. But, but it's an obvious fact that if it's not benefiting the majority of the people, Okay, then just by its metrics of success, it's not a it's not going to be successful. Yep. And there are and a reformed doesn't mean gone away with. It means changing certain things. That means it works better, keeping capitalism and so on. Capitalists tend to be people who um, have new ideas. And if you give them capital and they can invent really good things and improve it. it. You know, it's a wonderful system. It's been proven by everybody. It's been adopted by the Chinese, Deng Xiaoping, to make a better uh, system. But it has to work in a way where it produces the outcomes that you want. The middle, the problem is capitalists are, are better able of increasing the pie, but they don't know how to divide the pie well. They don't have to share it well. And socialists um, don't know how to make it as good a pie, but they divide it well. So I think you need the bipartisan. Like if I was president of the United States, which, by the way, I will never be. I'm not running. But I would want to have a bipartisan cabinet. OK, I'd put a bipartisan cabinet. And I would have the equivalent to a Manhattan Project to think about what reforms need to be made to achieve that. Uh, uh, in other words, of the left, of the right, smart, capable, mechanically savvy individuals who know about engineering. 
and there will have to be structural changes. For example, let's say education. Uh, the Constitution uh, makes um, education a state is, uh, issue, which then is in most states become the local tax district issue. My, I know this well because my wife um, and, and I, to some extent, but her really works in the wor worst school districts in Connecticut. Uh, I'll give you a stock shocking statistic. In Connecticut, which is one of the richest states in the country, 22% of the high school students are either disengaged or disconnected. Disengaged means that their absentee rate is greater than 25% they're failing class. Oh, oh my gosh. And disconnected means that they don't know where they are because they dropped out of school. 22% of the high school students are That's failing terrible. high school. Now there's a cycle there. They're in a poor district. They're not, they don't have parents who adequately take care of them and so on. The state of Connecticut spends $600 billion, a million dollars a year on um, incarcerations because there's that. So the notion, you know, like there's no better investment than quality education, but these types of changes, some have to be reformed. Maybe it requires some constitutional amendments, but it certainly means working together because the country or the world as a whole has more resources than it ever had. It has more intelligence than it ever had, but it has a choice. Is it going to go to war? Or is it, and which will make things worse than ever? Or is it going to try to find a way together to make that better whole? That's the choice I think we face. Philosopher, rock star, uh, one of, in my mind, one of the most uh, interesting modern day intellectuals of our era. Coleman Hughes, welcome Coleman. It's an honor to be here. So uh, tell us about the conversations you have that you think that people are, are seeking. I mean, I think there is an appetite for uh, reason and rationality, uh, for even temperedness, uh, modern day um, philosophy, if you will. I can't like, I'm thinking about the philosophers I know mm -hmm. uh, in 2022 and you know, you could count them uh, in my mind, on one hand, and you're one of them. <laughs> um, so what do you think, uh, uh, what are the big themes that, that you explore um, that are, are appealing to people? Yeah, so I think the, the, the basic theme I explored that was the source of me getting a following on Quillette, the, my, my podcast ballooning in success during 2020, was that I really think your race and your skin color should not matter in 99% of cases. I think it doesn't matter. It's, it's superficial. And what matters is our common humanity. So uh, uh, the re response to for a lot of people, I think, mm -hmm. which you've probably heard a million times, mm -hmm. is, well, I certainly would want it to be that way. Uh, but is it that way, question mark? And then people would be like, no, so we have to do X, Y. Right. So that, that's an illogical argument. It's, um, if your reply to race doesn't matter is, well, the racists disagree, you're kind of proving my point, which is the people who make race matter, the people to whom race is important are wrong. So we shouldn't fight them by agreeing with their basic premise. We should fight them by rejecting their premise. And 
too many people have decided the right way to fight racism is essentially to agree about the underlying racial, racial essentialism. Blackness and whiteness are really real things. They're really very important. They're core parts of my identity. You can't really understand me unless you understand my how the color of my skin is an intrinsic feature of who I am, a deep feature of who I am that separates and divides us such that you can't really, there's some incommunicable barrier between us um, and we should organize our politics around these variables. Um, people have decided that that's the only way or the best way to respond to white supremacy and and racism and the, the alt-right and so forth. And I I reject that. I reject that approach. I, I believe that, you know, what is, well, I guess what used to be called colorblindness is really the the only philosophically sound approach to have towards race. And I, and I don't mean pretending not to see race, right? I'm clearly Asian. Yes, you're clearly Asian. I'm clearly not. Is it the comedian Dove Davidoff has this joke where he's like, uh, I met this woman the other day who said she doesn't see race. And I thought, good luck describing your attacker. That's it's like, rough. Just tell, tell the police to look for a man with a frown. It was like, the point is, obviously, everyone sees race, right? So that pat phrase, I don't see race, is false and misleading. But what people, the, the charitable interpretation of that is, I strive to be a person that does not let race influence my considered decisions. And that's the world that I want to create. I want to create a world where, where people think about race less and less and less. And, and the people who do obsess about race are more and more ostracized from the mainstream corridors of power. Well, this is a very uh, interesting counter to racism. Um, the tagline for my presidential campaign was humanity first. So you, yeah. you can imagine, uh, you know, like this is the world that I want, mm -hmm. the world where where folks uh, don't use race as a uh, like a factor in, you know, the way they treat people, the way they mm -hmm. respond to um, to situations. So you've heard all of the counter arguments, I'm sure, and like I don't want to oh, yeah. be the person who like you know belabors them. Since no, yeah, I mean I'm <laughs> currently writing a book where I examine every counter argument that's that's out there. It's uh, so uh, my perspective on this is a a little different than yours, though. Again, I think we're aligned. Um, so I grew up in a majority white suburb mm -hmm. um, in upstate New York, uh, probably not as diverse as Montclair. It's one of mm -hmm. the only Asian kids. Uh, and so, like, I got picked on for being different. Uh, pretty much anyone who wasn't a white kid got picked on for, for being different. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that the culture has shifted in ways where I, like, look at my boys. I'm a dad now. I've got two little Asian boys, nine, nine and six. And I look at them. I'm like, huh, like, are they going to experience the same sort of thing? Um, and right now it doesn't seem like it, <laughs> you know, at least maybe not in the same way, mm -hmm. certainly that my brother and I did. Um, uh, and so my, my feeling on this is that like that tribalism exists sort of baked into mm -hmm. human nature. Yeah. Um, and our goal should be to your point, one, 
accept that a certain level of tribalism exists. Don't pretend that, you know, you look at someone and be like, oh, like, you know, I don't see that you're like a different race. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you try and counter the corrosive uh, evil effects of that tribalism in different ways. And Mm -hmm. I agree with you that the appeal to universalism is a better working appeal than, you know, reinforcing tribalism Mm -hmm. in different respects. Um, So I think everything I said, I doesn't disagree with you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, no, some level of tribalism is inevitable. And not only that, there are, I would even concede that there are certain times where tribalism is a, a, a good thing. Or it's it's the really the only way to get people to go so far above and beyond to help their fellow man. So like realistically, there there have been times where, you know, Jews were fleeing persecution in, in one part of the world, and they could find refuge with Jews that were total strangers to them in a different part of the world that would take them into their homes, right and. That's a kind of altruism that is tough to get people to do absent tribalism, actually. It's like they they accepted Jews from a totally different part of the world just because they were part of the tribe. And that so so I would even carve out some un, some unique instances where tribalism is the only plausible way of getting people to just be super altruistic to to people whom would other who would otherwise be total strangers but in most cases tribalism divides far more than it brings people together and it creates all of these inevitable resentments when you put race into policy right like when when biden puts into his uh restaurant relief covid policy that he's going to put to the front of the line people restaurants that are owned by people of color um, regardless of the need, the individual needs of, of sort of the, the struggling restaurants, that creates an understandable resentment in a white restaurant owner who's struggling, who knows all the specifics of situation, how hard he or she is working, may even em- employ mostly people of color. You know, like I know examples like this and it's like I'm being put at the back of this line uh, on something that is really, it's well-meaning, but it's, it's harming me for some for a reason that I can't control. At the end of the day, I don't think you can ever ask people to to pay for arbitrary characteristics that they were born into. It will always create resentment no matter how you justify it. So we have to get to some equilibrium where we can seriously focus on, you know, intergenerational poverty, na- neighborhoods that are stuck in intergenerational poverty with high high crime rates. Um, and invest heavily in that as as an independent problem, but really create and foster a a colorblind general legal and political foundation. So uh, when I think about racism, I think about the fact that uh, economic opportunity and educational opportunity are vastly uneven. I think um, uh, the average black house household has something like 10% the net worth of the average white household. And mm-hmm. and so I, I think of it more in terms of uh, the economic disparities and the realities than I do like the, like the way individuals treat each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was with a black person 
uh, when I was running for president and that person was like, look, I don't care if like everyone loves me. I just want right. my schools to be better or, or, or whatever it is. Right. Uh, I mean, that, that was that was really the attitude of I mean, the attitude of the, all, all the great civil rights leaders we look back on and admire, like Dr. King and Bayard Rustin. And they all I mean, as compelling as 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 Martin Luther King was in terms of actually getting white Americans that were on the fence to support the civil rights movement and to want to bring black people into the into the fully into the American fold. They were not at the end of the day focused on getting all white people to like like them, right? Like they they understood they had a very hard headed approach that you don't have to like me, but you do have to do my shit. Yeah, you do have to let me be free. Right. You yeah. have to let like, me participate. I want you to change this and change yeah. that. And like, you know, how you feel about me right. afterwards <laughs> right. is, is less relevant. Yes. So, I mean, the, the truth is there's always going to be bigots in the world. Always. And there's and, you know, over time, I think the amount of bigots has actually reduced somewhat as ideas have changed, as people have um, met as people from different races and ethnic groups meet each other and mingle and but it's never going to go away ever it's like and and people have a totally i think implicitly they have an unrealistic attitude to this which is like for instance no one expects the murder rate to ever be zero even in like these western european countries that we look to that have far less violence than we do and are more homogeneous than we are yeah and are more homogeneous than we are and have very different circumstances but even there no one expects to have a, a murder rate of literal zero, right? Like there's always going to be a, a guy that finds out his wife has been cheating and like murders the other guy. And you can't fully prevent it, nor do we have that benchmark, at, like a literal zero benchmark for success. And bigotry is the same way. You can never, you can't fully purify human, the human mind. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Very happy to welcome to the podcast, Monica Guzman, 
the author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times, and the chief storyteller for one of my favorite organizations in all the world, Braver Angels. Welcome, Monica. How are you? Hey, hey. I am doing great. It's good to be here. So, yeah, how did you become so passionate about trying to have curious conversation? I mean, you're a naturally curious person. It seems to be a driving theme of your career. Um, uh, but the, your, your book, what, what I love about it is that it actually is practical. Um, it's born of the, you know, the experience you've had getting hundreds, maybe thousands of people to open up. Yeah, that was definitely a goal from the beginning. Uh, I had read a lot about why we're here, how we got here. It's a really interesting problem and we haven't solved it. The first part of my book is called SOS. It's the call for help. Sorting, othering, siloing. Those are the three forces Yikes. that brought us here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real, you know? <laughs> but the other four-fifths of the book uh, walk people through this path where first we understand curiosity and how it works in our brains. When we, when we pay attention to the gap between what we know and what we don't know, it's this incredible craving that can get us to do so much. And so you can actually turn it on. You don't have to wait for it to come up. You can turn it on and channel it and target right the things you don't understand. And then we learn the power of conversation, especially a one-to-one -one conversation. It's people are you know, scared of them in some ways because they are so unpredictable and so powerful that it doesn't even matter almost who you are outside the conversation. In that conversation, you, you can have this extraordinary ability to cut through any divide. If you, if you know how to ask perceptive and powerful questions, if you know how to stay respectful and build traction with each other. And then, you know, the, the book goes on through a series of solutions or, you know, things to try that are based um, around a couple of core ideas. And I'll mention one of them now, which is that knowing where people are coming from is one of the best ways to understand where they are. So asking questions about people's experiences that led to their views and asking questions about the concerns people have around their issues are great ways to not be so judgmental so that you can be curious. When you're curious, you actually cannot be judgmental. These are two different modes. Um, so pushing us away from judgment, back into curiosity, back into curiosity, back into curiosity, does amazing things for our relationships. People, you know, I've learned as a journalist, people love to talk about themselves. Oh yeah. <laughs> if, it's, if it's in a generous context, they want to tell their story. Who doesn't want to be heard? Yeah, most of us love to hear ourselves talk because <laughs> we're, we're very wise. Uh, we have a lot to we offer. Think, we think we are. <laughs> but you know what? But but no, the, the serious point is, you know, we live in a society that, that sort of still thinks, well, you know, you're only as wise as your education. You're only as wise as your intelligence. You know, you're only as wise as these things. And we don't, we don't think about wisdom all that much. We all have life. We all are experts in life. And we have walked our own paths through it. And everybody's path is interesting. No matter what you conclude, if you believe a bunch of baloney, your path still contains a lot of truth. And so it's, so it's those things that we need to mind and, and, and look behind, you know, all those places that we feel we're stuck. Look behind that to the person's path, to their story, and you'll, you'll discover pretty interesting stuff that'll help you relate and connect. Not agree. That's not, that's not the point. But relate and connect so that we can do stuff together. <laughs> no. Yeah, live together. Live together. So we, we can't let this conversation end without talking about family a bit. Do you have a family of your own now? Yes, two kids, nine and seven. Wow, me too. Uh, Same I'm ages? 
Nine and six, two boys. Oh, ah, no way. So your parents must now be very happy that uh, their their grandparents and all that jazz. Um, so they have no choice but to... <laughs> Oh, they love it. They love it. But uh, you, you talked about how you've had political disagreements uh, with them for, for a long time. Uh, go ahead and give guidance to folks who might have a similar situation uh, in their family where they, they feel like there's this uh, political divide. Yeah. And this is where, you know, my, my inbox has become like a, a confession booth, you know, a place where a lot of people are, are telling me about these stories with family, where there's such strong relationships. One story I can think of uh, that I shared with Brave Angels is a woman named Courtney, who's very purple herself, doesn't consider herself red or blue, but cares deeply about some political issues and loves her father dearly. And, and there was a, a, a moment where they fought so hard about politics that her father said, that's it. We just can't talk about politics anymore. Oh, no. And so, I mean, that seemed like okay for maybe a bit, but what Courtney realized, and I think a lot of people are realized, is that when, when, when you care deeply about certain issues and, and, and you know, you're very concerned about them, um, then it feels like when you can't talk about politics, you can't even be yourself. And the people you love can't know you or see you. And, and that's the thing that we can't, that, that's no way to live in a way, right? Like if we have these meaningful relationships, what gives them meaning is that we can be our full selves around each other. So that's the conundrum. For a lot of people, the solution is, well, we just don't talk about politics. And maybe that's fine, you know, if it's just Thanksgiving dinners and here and there, and you keep that bridge open, that's fine. But in times like this, when it's just so much more heat and stress, you want to be able to do something about it. So among the, 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 the most powerful, I think, things that you can try is we tend to want to engage with each other on the level of logic and syllogism and reason, right? Why do you believe what you believe? How could you possibly believe what you believe? Urgh, you know. But even if you take the, the disrespectful tone out and you leave, why do you believe what you believe? Even then, we think of why as such a powerfully curious question, but in times of division and suspicion, why puts people on the defensive. It, it makes them reach for, oh, what's the talking point? What's the thing that, oh gosh, I better show up well to this relative of mine, or they're going to think less of me, or here we go, I'm being put to the test. It's like you're on trial. You, we're putting each other on trial when we ask why, and everyone has to think of their reason. And, and they won't think of candid reasons usually, you know, they'll just go for what feels safe, because so many people are not even comfortable sharing their political beliefs. So instead, ask questions around how. How did you come to believe what you believe? You know, what comes up for you? Like, so dad, I know that you and I disagree hugely about immigration. And I'm, I'm really curious, like, what, what kind of things have happened, you know, in your life that, that make you make you think that your position on this is, is, is really important and, and ask it that way. And, and what happens is that the questions naturally carry a lot less judgment. And what you're doing is you're collecting sort of knowledge about that person's path, that person's experience. How um, did you come to this mistaken opinion? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing. You got to peel off the disrespect. <laughs> keep them curious. People think that every question is curious, like journalists know better, right? Some questions are just accusations disguised as questions. They're just gotcha. They, they're meant to disqualify people. I put think them I've, in I've been on the receiving end of some of them. I, I know that you have. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's in the public good because it's a powerful person, blah, blah, blah. We know that. But with each other on a one-to-one oh, -one relationship level, if we're trying to build trust, you know, if we're trying to build trust, then we have to accept, we have to accept each other first which is the radical thing, and then understand each other and then judge. 
I mean, what we're doing is we're judging recklessly because we don't even see, we're not even seeing each other clearly. So when we judge, what are we judging? We're judging projections. We're judging ghosts. You know, that's no way to build a society. So yeah, we have to fix that. We have to get each other's stories and have them and invite people to take us on a tour through their path and the concerns and the experiences that make it up uh, instead of put them on trial. Wow, you could really do a lot of good, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I tell you, there's, there's a woman who left a review of my book on Amazon and like brought me to tears, but she said that she had not talked to her 85-year-old mother who had voted for Trump for years and that she, she read the book and she thought the tips were pretty good. And so she put them to work and she says, you know, she started listening to her mom and asking different kinds of questions. And now she says their relationship is really good. And I, I mean, that made it all worth it, you know? Yeah, that would make everything worth it. That made it all worth it. Yeah. I will share with you that uh, I got dozens of times over my campaign, um, like, thank you, you helped bring our family together because, uh, you know, like we, you helped uh, us feel like we could like agree on something. Yeah. Uh, and like, that, that was like an incredible blessing to hear. I was like, wow. Then, you know, another thing that someone said to me too, is like they, they had a um, Trump supporting mom um, and they themselves were, were uh, blue. And then uh, their mom said to them that like Yang is the only Democrat I would support because he doesn't feel like he's judging us at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I was mm -hmm. like, holy cow, like this is probably wow. a very important lesson there. Yeah, you know, we should. And I mean, she's right. Like, I, I have zero judgment on um, people based upon their political views. I actually think I understand yeah. what's driving a lot of what, what's happening in, in, in this country. Yeah, uh, you, made, you made such an important contribution and you're doing it every day. Um, I, I, but I'm going to wrap on this thought that's been stuck in my head a little bit. I'm going to run it by you and see, see what you think. So it, it feels like the Republican Party under Trump has become this version of sort of angry, toxic masculinity, like the crazy uncle or, 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 or grandpa. And then the Democratic Party has become this um, somewhat like, uh, you know, identity laden uh, moralism that like most people don't feel is genuine. And, and so when you talk about like the, the country needing family therapy, like this is an idea that's stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think both parties are in this place of confusion and, and panic and a little bit of madness because we all are. Uh, and that, that's what happens, I think, when everything's a funhouse mirror and we're not sure what to do about it. So yeah, the parties are just an extension, the same way that media is an extension and politics, politicians, right? Their behavior in the conventions, all an extension of, of what we're feeling on the ground and, and what's going on on the ground. Every time I talk with my parents, so they're, they, they're conservative, they voted for Trump twice um, and I'm liberal, but as I say in the book, I, I've gotten to the point where if I know that if I were them, I would have voted for Trump too. Wow. Duh. That's a very, and, very big thought. And knowing that, yeah, like it's it it a tough thing to admit and it took a, a bit to be able to admit it in the book, but getting to the place where I could admit that, it was, it was sort of, well, here they are and here I am. Now what? It's, it's not, I'm, I need to defeat you. I need to change you. Yes. It's a different question. It's, we need to build a society together that somehow balances uh, the different stacks of values that we have. People think, people look across the divide and say, they don't share my values, but, but actually they do. They just stack them in a different order for different issues. You know, when, when we develop different communities, different communities develop different languages. And over time, if they don't inter interact that well, it's a Tower of Babel. 
you know? And, and that's what's happening too. So that's only adding to the panic and the frustration and the madness. So we, we need some of these, uh, you know, it counter things. But again, I've, I've talked to members of Congress, you know, one-on-one, on background, people want to fix this. And, and I, for one, am, am really encouraged by the work a lot of politicians are doing, um, including yourself, just anyone who's really tackling this beast instead of just accepting the game as it is, we need that. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Joining me on Forward, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, the author of the incredible and important new book, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It, Richard Reeves. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Uh, congratulations for taking on this important topic. So Brookings, just a level set for everyone, Brookings is generally considered the number one think tank in all the land. And you are uh, a wonk, uh, uh, an economist. Like, what was your work in prior to examining uh, what's happening with boys and men? Yeah, I think I have to correct you already, Andrew. I think it's number one in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Right, just like the the Brookings con people are going to kill me if I don't correct you. It's like the global number one thing. thing. Um, and interesting, when I when I moved to the US from, from the UK in 2012, I'd served in the, the government over there, my wife said to me, what is, what, where would you most like to work? Like, where's the dream job for you? And I said, scholar at the Brookings Institution. Uh, and I'm really fortunate that that is exactly where I landed. Uh, and that's because the Brookings Institution is, is nonpartisan, it's authoritative, our values are quality, independence, and impact which means that we can do our work without looking over one shoulder or the other, worrying about which senators are going to call you, or just you know, do the best you can. Uh, and my work previously is focused mostly on, on economic inequality and lack of upward mobility. What are the barriers to people being upwardly mobile? And that was true in the UK and now in the US. And that gets into issues of class differences in the US, obviously race differences in the US. But that then led me to this new focus because I on boys and men, because as I was doing that work, I just kept stumbling across these inequalities that actually were, were troubling and which didn't go the way you'd expect to go. When you talk about gender equality, 
you presume you're always talking about women and girls. Sometimes you still are, but increasingly we now have to look at the problems facing boys and men. And so that that my work on inequality and family and uh, and class led me to the new focus on boys and men. So you opened the book um, with the fact that some people tried to warn you off this topic. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but then you end the book saying that everyone actually is interested in the topic, uh, <laughs> which made it feel like there's this undercurrent, um, but people hadn't publicly uh, spoken about it and kind of were afraid to. Yeah, I, I, I one of the reasons I ended up tackling the subject uh, was because so many of the people that I was talking to, this was the issue, right? The school gates over the dinner table, over at lunch break. Uh, people were talking about their sons, they were talking about their brothers, their uncles, and just how they were struggling either in school or in the labor market. But particularly if they were on the on the center left, that wasn't something they took out into public. That was something that would remain private. So they felt like there was this gap between a lot of the private anxiety people are feeling, including among many liberals, and the public discourse around this issue. And so it was almost like, it was like, it was the inequality that dare not speak its name, at least yeah. on the center left. And and so it was into that space that, I, that I, re I really felt I was trying to, to some extent, bridge the gap between the school gate conversations and the political conversations where there's really been a deafening silence, especially on the center left and then a weaponization on the right, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. So l let's get this out of the way really quick. Um, I, I wrote a book, The War on Normal People, that delved into some of the issues that are facing men, particularly as their most common livelihoods have been uh, automated or globalized uh, away. Uh, and it's not a zero sum game where you can be concerned about boys and men and uh, still be very much for uh, elevating women in areas that they've been uh, discriminated against in or marginalized or generally uh, advocating for gender equality. The argument you make is that, look, gender equality is gender equality in the sense that if there are realms <laughs> that one gender is is really, really falling behind in, for example, boys in school, that also is gender equality. And it's a very legitimate thing for us to be concerned about and try to address. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, you know, credit to you, Andrew, and also you were kind enough to in endorse this book, but your Washington Post piece, uh, I think, was an important intervention. Uh, and you've obviously had Warren Farrell on, on here before and talked to him. And so I think you are one of the one of the few public figures who have been willing to engage in this issue in good in good faith and in, a, in a, what I would say is a positive way, which does avoid exactly that zero sum framing you've just described, which is this if we're presented with this choice, like whose side do you want effectively, right? And they're even raising the fact that there are some areas where boys and men are struggling means that you have to stop paying attention to the areas where women and girls uh, are struggling. It's just, it's a nonsensical false choice, classic, a classic example of, of culture war uh, paralysis. And actually, you know, my wife, for example, is trying to raise money right now. Um, for a startup, and you, know, you you will know some some of these stories, Andrew. But you know, so I know on a very personal basis that only two percent of venture capital money goes to female founders. Right, I'm reminded of that on a on at least a daily basis, and it's true, and it's a problem. And then there are other areas we could talk about where there remain no problems and barriers facing women and girls. It doesn't mean we have to then ignore the problems facing boys and men. It's a it's a false choice, and it turns out. It turns out people can think two thoughts at once. 
Uh, our politicians struggle to do that, but ordinary people are perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah, and it's a symptom of our polarized environment where it's like choose a side, and then you know mm. you you wind up in this inflamed environment. Uh, when I was running for president, I became very acutely aware of the issues facing boys and men. And one story that did come across my my desk from Warren Farrell was that there was another Democratic presidential candidate who said, I can't talk about this because I'm in a Democratic primary. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 uh, you know, and, and that that's obviously in my mind, uh, perverse um, and messed up. So let's dig into the problems that you identify. So broadly speaking, it's school and it's work, and you have some prescriptions for each. So let's start with school. Boys are struggling at school uh, from the get-go, essentially K through 12. Uh, the stats are staggering. I will confess that I am a dad of two boys. Uh, mine are much younger than yours. It sounds mm-hmm. like yours are in their early 20s. Yeah. Mine are nine and seven. Um, but the, the data around boys struggling in school and being immature and their brains forming later jives with the experience of just about every parent and family I know <laughs> where if you if you have girls of the same age interacting with your boys, you're like, wow, these girls seem like a hundred times more with it than my boys. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you don't. You know, you don't like necessarily impugn your boys by saying that. I mean, like a, a lot of folks are having very similar experiences, but unfortunately, that's playing out um, in schools writ large. Yeah, and I think it's it's a a really interesting example of how it took women, the women's movement, it took progress on behalf of girls and women to to expose some of these differences. And so, as you say, there are these big gaps. So, you know, a few data points that that you know well, but. Uh, in college, for example, the, the college gap is huge now. The, the, the percentage difference between the women getting four-year college degrees and men is now 15 percentage points in favor of women. And that compares to a 13 percentage point gap in favor of men in 1972 when Title IX was passed to help women and girls. Among those with the highest GPA, finishing high school, two-thirds are girls. And among those with the lowest GPA, two-thirds are boys. In the average school district in the US now, girls are almost a grade level ahead in English and uh, and have matched the boys in math. So this there is sometimes this idea, well, girls are better at some things, boys are better at other things. Well, basically now that's not true. Basically just girls are better at everything. Um, and that great catching up and overtaking has exposed the ways in which the education system actually doesn't suit boys very well. And particularly for the reasons that you've identified. And again, I, like, I have three boys, raised them through adulthood, and it is just a fact that they, the parts of their brain do develop a little bit later on average than girls. And it is the bit of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, that is the bit that says, finish your homework, don't go, to, don't go out partying. Oh, and also turn in your homework the next day. Oh, and also maybe study for that test because that test will affect your GPA, right? And your GPA matters for your college admissions and getting into college might matter for your future. So it's about future orientation. And there just is, a, there is a difference between boys and girls. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, I've got all this evidence from neuroscience and, you know, the all the, the psychologists, and then you, you share all that with teachers and parents and principals and they go, well, duh. Like this basic fact is not not surprising to them but we ignore it in our education policy like why why if that fact is so obvious to everybody do we ignore it in the way that we structure and time education for boys and girls yeah so you have a have a number of recommendations three big ones which i all agree with frankly number one is the most interesting and i think has gotten the most publicity which is redshirt the boys let's just have boys start school a year later 
Uh, the other two, just so people have a sense of it, um, it is to uh, invest in vocational education. Uh, and the, the third was drug my memory. Uh, more male teachers. Uh, we, more we male have fewer, teachers, yes. Have, and this is just in education. Those are the three big education ones. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so what has the response been to redshirting uh, boys for a year, which I think is a great idea. Uh, you know, I've advocated for a gap year um, mm. a, as an example, heading to college because the maturation serves people mm. really well. Yeah, that is that is an alternative that people have proposed, uh, including in the UK. There's been this debate about should you know, should you have this gap year, especially for boys. But my view is that we should just start earlier. Right? If we if we know that that gap is coming, if we know that developmental gap is coming, and it's particularly wide in adolescence, why don't we just anticipate it, right? So you, start the you, boys. Your, your your idea is better than doing the gap year later because a lot of the data shows that the boys are struggling earlier on, and you want them yeah. to actually have a foundation, enjoy learning, not have behavioral yeah. problems, etc. Yeah, I, I mean, my view is that you know, rather than letting them fall behind and then try and catch up later, why don't we try and help them keep up, right? It's, it's easier to keep up than to catch up. And so I think we start them in, in school a year later, it means that just developmentally, they'll be closer to equal. Right? So one of these weird things, like the chronological age that we choose to start kids in school is very arbitrary. Uh, it's a proxy for development. But it turns out that it differs on average between girls and boys. Uh, and so let's actually just bake it in from the beginning. I think it's one of these, it's one of those suggestions that, sounds incredibly radical to a lot of people, except every parent and educator and principal I've spoken to, right? So they all go, yeah, of course you should do that. Like, to them, it's blindingly obvious. Um, but of course, it, it would need to be piloted and evaluated. But that's the one, I think that's interesting. That's got some more pushback. Interestingly, the, other, the others, in theory, the idea that we should spend more on vocational learning and the fact that we should at least try and arrest the decline in the number of male teachers in our classroom. Most people are like, they're on board with both of those ideas. The red shirting one is a little bit more controversial, I would say. Uh, and there are good arguments against against the policy as well as in favor of it, which I try to take seriously in the book. Um, but overall, what I'm being pleased by is the when people are disagreeing, what they're saying is, I don't think that's the best way to help boys. Okay, right, let's have a discussion then about the best way to help boys. But at least we're having the conversation now about boys which means we've accepted the fact that they might need more help. One of the funniest people on the internet, one half of Gillian Keeves, and someone I have a little bit of shared history with, Shane Gillis. Hey, Welcome, Shane. I'm happy we finally got to actually sit down. Yeah, me too. So you and I spoke back in 2019 uh and so uh, you know i was one, like if people are like shane gillis that sounds vaguely familiar <laughs> and you're an, an andrew yang fan so to to recast this september 2019 some very exciting announcements are made about the new cast of saturday night live it includes bowen yang chloe Feynman, and shane gillis and so you are exultant for approximately how many hours <laughs> i probably had 24 hours because i knew i was going to get a, i got the call that i was going to be on the show a day before and then when yeah once it got announced i probably had about six hours didn't take them long okay so then six hours later news came out that you had made some uh, offensive comments on a podcast maybe like you know x months earlier about yeah. 
me personally, I, I was on there, and then yeah. other groups. I think uh, Asians were certainly on there. Uh, maybe maybe some others. I and, think all of them for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean every group, know, every group. So yeah, they was, got me on Asians though. Seems like, like I just heard about the Asian thing. Yeah, which is a it's a funny thing to get me particularly for one thing, because then it seems like that's like something I'm actually like, you know what I mean? Now it looks like I just am a guy going around like fucking I hate Asians. It's like no, dude. Well, you know what I mean. I, I'm, you know, does that make I, sense? No, it, it, it does <laughs> make sense because that's the way I remember the news coverage, and that's yeah. obviously how it came to my attention. So uh, I see this, and then I'm like, okay, who the heck is this guy? And my my wife's like, who the heck is this guy? So we sit down and watch some of your comedy, and pretty quickly conclude that you're not some like you know malignant, uh, rancid like ranting type. <laughs> yeah. That you seemed like a comedian. Uh, and at that time, I made a statement saying, look, like, I, I don't like some of this humor, but no one should lose their job over making comments on a podcast. Uh, you know, and I didn't say this at the time, but it was like, Con- podcast that frankly, no one fucking heard. No one listened. No, no, no one yeah. listened. And so someone took the time to be like, OK, here are these things. You're an up-and-coming comedian. I thought that in this case, it was like, look. Uh, and at the time, even when I made this statement, I didn't think that they would listen. Um, but I said, as someone who is personally slurred, I don't think that this is something that someone should lose a job over. Yeah. And and then, uh, so during this time, what's happening to you? Oh, um, yeah, just getting canceled. And so what is it <laughs> like? getting crushed. Uh, what do you say being crushed? So the news stories start coming out, and then what happens? Uh, you just start getting, like, every tweet ever. Like, I mean, I was number one on Twitter for, like, three days. Just getting... Because there was a debate. That was the hard part. It was, like, there was... I understood both sides of the argument. Like, I, I think everyone did. Like, he should be fired, or he was just joking. So you go from the highest of highs, probably calling your parents, being like, hey, yeah, guess what? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, that was the first thing I was ever able to like tell my parents in comedy that they understood, you know, normally they'd be like, oh, I'm featuring this weekend for so and so. They'd be like, who cares? This was the first one. I was like, I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live. They were like, wow. Wow. We're proud of you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it must have been a number of years to lead up to that point. And yeah. there were probably times when your parents were not exactly pumped about <laughs> no, your no, career no, choices. No. Social media is attacking you. Like, uh, are you getting updates from your agent in a particular way? Uh, does someone? Who, yeah, who, who reaches nonstop. out to you? Just on the phone for like four days straight. I taught English in Spain for a little, and so I still had these Spanish teachers that I was friends with, and then I didn't talk to them for like three years. Then I got SNL, and I was on the news in Madrid. They were like no. racist, comico, like, and they all started hitting me on WhatsApp. Like, Shane, what the? What happened? Like, you're racist? I was like, lo siento. <laughs> lo siento, amigos. So I went to go do stand-up that night. And I was like, oh, this is going to be the coolest night ever. All the comedians are going to be like, hey, there he is. You know. So I'm on the train from Queens going into the city. And my agent calls and is like, did you say that slur? And I was like, no. Like I was like, I wouldn't say that. I genuinely, I was like, no, I don't even. Why would I say that? And then she was like, here's a video of you saying it. And I was like, holy shit. It was surreal. It was totally surreal. I'm not like, by the way, I'm not, I want it to be clear. I'm not a victim. Like, I'm not like sitting here like, oh, I can't believe what they did to me. It's like, no, there's it, a video it, of me using a slur. It's like, there's going to be some backlash. Yeah. Oh, so, and it's one of the things I, I've appreciated about your um, 
time since, and a lot of people might not know this, but you haven't, frankly, responded in the way a lot of people do if they are the recipient of like a lot of energy, which is to go to whatever the opposite of that energy yeah. is. Yeah, I tried to make sure that, because that's how, that's how it really, like getting canceled or however you want consequence, whatever, uh, that's how I think it really gets you, is if you let it become who you are. So around this time, um, I, my team puts me in touch with you and I have a call with you. During our phone conversation, I was like, okay, like I felt good about the statement I made saying like, look, I, I don't think this guy should, should lose his job. Yeah, and I, I really, really appreciated that, for real. Like that was like, I was like, damn, this guy's awesome. So SNL, it may be one of the highest watermarks in comedy. And they thought you were funny enough to be there. Yeah. And so that has to feel good. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool to go straight to cast. That was cool. Oh yeah, it was cool. A, yeah, a great six hours apparently. It was a good six hours. Okay, so I was on, uh, I was on a panel a uh, number of days ago with Chris Christie, who now people uh, are down on for various reasons. But mm. sitting with him, he was both talented and funny. Yeah. And he made a case to the folks that were there. It was like, hey, you put me on a debate stage with Donald Trump, like I can really do some damage. Um, and listening to Christy talk about this, I was like, he actually could because he's been around him a lot. He's kind of comfortable and he's got that, that kind yeah. of manner. Like, I, I think that there's some real merit to having someone with comedic experience and abilities, uh, particularly if, if uh, you're running against someone like Trump. Trump yeah. actually has a lot of those. He's very funny. He's undeniably funny. Yeah. I, I honestly, I think he's undeniably fun. Oh, I mean, he, <laughs> I mean, he's no, he's entertaining for sure. He's got, uh, he's also an incredibly experienced performer. Yeah. The proportion of politics that is performative is now sky high. Yeah. Uh, and so, if you have these performers, you have these political performers, and a lot of people are tuning out that sort of performance now. Like there was yeah. a, a theory I had that we we're in like a post-inspiration age where if you come out and you're like inspirational, um, like Obama, like now that stuff like, you know, doesn't work as well. That's because they used it up. They did it so often with everything. Everybody was trying to be inspirational. Like it'd be like, is it, is that, like, you know, it'd be like, oh, great. <laughs> A significant proportion of them almost seem like they're imitating Obama too, because yeah, that's for the sure. template. For sure. And it doesn't seem to work. No. And now there's going to be a, probably a, a wave of dudes imitating Trump which that's tough to pull off. He's one of the only guys I think that can do that, which is get away with everything. Oh, I 1,000% agree with you that Trump <laughs> is going to spawn a whole legion yeah, yeah. Uh, of... Which will be fun to watch I for imitators. me. It'll be funny to see guys try to be mean on the debate stage. That'll be fun. Well, there was a moment in 2016 when Marco Rubio tried to yeah. imitate Trump and it was just, it he fell so hammered. flat and you're just yeah. like, oh, it doesn't work. Um, you have to to be able to pull it off in a certain Jeb, way. Jeb tried. Jeb started chirping back when he got it's, crushed. He was like, you're high energy tonight, Jeb. I like that. It was like, oh, it's so was, fucking good at talking shit. And everybody else had to play by the political rules. Everybody else had to, don't be rude. Be a politician. Be good. And he's up there just bullying people. Just overrunning them. I am pumped to welcome to Forward, world-class poker champion, <laughs> best-selling author of the book in my hand, Die With Zero, getting all you can from your money and your life, 
hedge fund manager, Epic investor, Bill Perkins. Welcome to Forward, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. So you, you tell the story too, which I, I laughed out loud. So your boss tells you, look, uh, you're doing it wrong. You should not be trying to scrimp and save, you know, a thousand bucks if you're here to make a fortune. And you're like, oh yeah, you're right. So you start spending too much. Uh, and then you fall asleep at your station and get fired. <laughs> um, yeah, this is another job, but yeah. <laughs> but then you end up switching to uh, another job as a, a broker, which is not what you precisely want to do. Um, but that ends up leading you to a role in Houston, Texas, where you are now. Uh, right. And there are a lot of people that might have hesitated about moving to Houston from New York, especially if they wanted to work in, you know, trading because like, oh, you know, like all the action is in New York. But then you looked at it and said, oh, like, like, sure, I'll make this move. Uh, and uh, there was like a, there were a couple of principles in there uh, where in your book, you talk about trying to be bold when you're young uh, and think about what you have to lose, because a lot of people overemphasize what they might be giving up uh, and underestimate what they might be gaining by right. making a decision. Right. They, they don't look at the opportunity cost, right? Like of, of, it, of the cost of inaction. And, and, and I was one of those people that was like, I'm never moving south on the Mason-Dixon line. Like, what the hell? Never go to Texas. Like, Texas was like rednecks and racists and cowboys. And, you know, I had this stereotypical image largely informed from uh, past and TV, right? And, you know, I, I didn't really know what Texas was like. I hadn't been there, but, you know, I was, I was like, I had the Texas of the 60s in my head, you know? And so not, not the Texas that it was when I moved down there. But fortunately for me, I was so passionate about uh, becoming a trader and, and wanting to do it. And, and this kind of like arrogant belief that I could do it, that I would have moved to Siberia. I would have went anywhere. I was like, what's the worst that can happen? You know what I mean? If they get me, they get me. You know, this and I and I made the move. And and luckily I had that attitude about it uh, to do it. And, you know, as I look at other people in different careers, I see people like, oh, there's this job and you can move here. And they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know anybody there. I have to move here, et cetera. And a lot of jobs or opportunities go unfilled, not necessarily that people can't do it, but they're not willing to take the emotional risk of move, moving. Right. Uh, meeting new friends, that, 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 that friction, right? And so they, they stay in a situation that may be less than ideal or even painful. Like I, I say, one of my sayings is people will avoid pain to live in misery. And I'm not saying everybody's in misery that doesn't move, but you know, some gradient of that happens with that fear. Yeah, you talk about a sales clerk who doesn't like her job and you're like, hey, you need to leave because the fact is you could get another job you don't like you know, immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that that rang true to me. Uh, a, a lot of, and so the, the book has different guidance for people at different life stages. And for young people, uh, it's around trying to home in on what you can gain from taking action as opposed to what you might lose and taking more risks when you have less to lose. Like be bolder when you, you have fewer yeah. responsibilities. Yeah, the, the downside is, is right, like, you know, at the end of the day, when I was like scrimping and saving and, and, and the risk of the floor is like, I could have got a job literally at a fast food restaurant and got paid more, right? Like they purposely pay you low because of the opportunity set that's there and you're going to go make, right? And so 
going, going, you know, and it's like, I could have been a waiter. I could have done anything. like, I was always going to survive. Uh, you know, survival wasn't an issue. It was just my ego of what was I willing to do it when I fell down. Right. And so I should have been taking, you know, max, max, max risk. In certain areas of my life, I did. In certain areas, I didn't, you know, in terms of like emotional risk or tra taking a travel or et cetera. Like I could have got another job as a screen clerk and climbed the ranks easily. Like I was one of the best screen clerks to ever work. <laughs> I'm going to say that. I'm just going to say that, you know, like, so like, uh, you know, I missed out, right. I missed out on, on that something that can't replace that period of my life has died. That season is gone. And it is now either, you know, I, I don't either don't have the aptitude or the attitude to go do it that way now. So you move to Houston, Texas and become uh, an energy trader and end up being Correct. very successful. Uh, one of the big principles of the book is around trying to figure out what your uh, life experience money trade-offs are. When you're on autopilot and you're just like, hey, I got good at this thing. This thing produces money. I'm going to keep money. When money becomes the goal and not the tool to fulfill your life, you just keep going on autopilot, right? The, the purpose, it's I always tell people like, Hammers and saws, you can like make the best hammers and saws, but that's not the goal. The goal is to build a house. But some people get stuck just accumulating hammers and saws, hammers and saws, hammers and saws. And so the money is a tool to, to enhance your life, not the other way around. And so I think, I think um, even, even at all income levels, right, you know, people need to get to the concept of enough. And to know enough, you have to get off on a pilot. Like, what, do I, what experiences do I want in my life? What things are going to fulfill me, right? Uh, and then once you have that, you know exactly how much money you need. Yeah, you talk too about time with your kids, and you're you're a parent. You've got two girls, right? Right. Uh, I've got two boys, um, and that itself also is like a scarce resource or a trade off. Where if you don't spend time with your kids during a certain year, like you don't get that year back, uh, and yeah. and. And so there's also like an investment in that regard. It's like, and you might think to yourself, oh, I need to make this money so that I can provide for my family. But spending time with your kids actually uh, is an investment in them as well that in some ways might be as or more important. And one of the things I love about you and your approach to things is like, you're so hyper rational about everything <laughs> where, and, and we'll Try talk a little bit about this, where you don't stop with this book. You actually have produced a couple of apps to help people optimize their time money trade-offs. But it instinctively made sense to me that if you're spending all your time, and you make this point in the book, if you spend all your time making money for the family and none of your time actually with your family, like time spent with the family would have a much higher return <laughs> for, right. for, for the child uh, than like another couple bucks in a lot of situations. Right. If you, if you look at money as a tool to fulfill you, right? Like it's basically a tool to fulfill me. The first, the first level is survival, right? And then after that, we're operating on a want basis, not a need basis. So once the needs are made, uh, met, we're operating on a want basis. And one of the things that your kids want, uh, whether they consciously or, 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 or unconsciously, is time with you, m memories with you, moments with you. And so piling an extra million dollars on it but taking away that time from you is basically giving them something useless, right? What they want is time with you, right? And I, I'm not saying I have the answer to the, the optimal balance, right? Like it's, 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 it's almost an intractable problem, but like these are the things we need to think about uh, so that we get more close to the optimal solution of balancing time with kids or family members or loved ones or, or what have you. Yeah, there was a lot of wisdom in your book too about 
different life stages where after you made some money being a good grandson, you give your grandma $10,000 and then she doesn't do anything with it uh, and turns around and it gives you like a sweater. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sweater. My mom corrected me. She also gave my daughter like a chain, like a small chain. But like it it really hit home that, uh, you know, the utility of money changes as you age. It really becomes you know, useless because the number of activities that either you enjoy doing or can do declines, right? Like, and, and this is just a natural thing. And I, I used to think, oh, not me. I'm going to be swinging from the chandeliers in the club when I'm 70. You know what I mean? And I look at my grandparents. I'm like, oh, I'm, who am I kidding? Like, th- these are my ancestors. This is the way my, even my dad, you know, who was kind of, kind of out there and, you know, they just, they just shift into gears. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the wealth planners or life planners say that, you know, there's the go-go years, the, the slow-go years and the no-go years. Yeah. And that's pretty much true for universally true for everyone. And so those, uh, you know, I call them Chuck E. Cheese tokens, that, those dollars you have, the, 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 the Chuck E. Cheese tokens for partying or ski trips or doing this, whatever, they expire, right, as you age and they become useless. And what I mean is, is that, certain amount of your money just becomes useless to you. It's not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't fulfill you the same way it could have, or at least the activities that fulfill you start to disappear. 